Thank you, Dan. Week in, week out, I, I get excited to see the number of people that go into the cafeteria to, or the cafe to uh, not only partake of the, of the meal, but to fellowship in the Lord, to enjoy the, the presence of the saints and, and, and just to encourage people. There have been times we've seen people praying for others and uh, just caring for the concerns. And, and it, gives, uh, it gives us an opportunity to, to be used of the Lord to, to do that. Uh, so please uh, continue to pray for the, the cafe and, and the work. And by the way, it really helps when you attend. So after church, uh, make sure you get over there. The food is always very good. All right. There are a couple of people we've been praying for this weekend. Uh, last night and this morning, in first service. Uh, one is uh, Lorraine Rodriguez. She is the daughter of Dan Rodriguez, our, one of our elders here in the church. And, she went into the hospital this week uh, with a collapsed lung, and uh, I heard good news today from Dan that uh, uh, the procedure that they used to help expand her lung is working, and so uh, we're thankful. We've been praying for that this week and, and, and thankful that, uh, for the outcome. So she hopefully will be uh, done with that treatment uh, tomorrow, maybe, or, or Tuesday. So we're, we want to give thanks to the Lord for that. But keep praying for Lorraine. And then we also want to pray for um, uh, Brisi uh, Gomez. She's uh, Ben Gomez's uh, daughter. Brisi, uh, ben is one of our maintenance staff here. And uh, she had a fractured hip this week doing some athletics. So we, uh, we want to lift her up in, in, in prayer for quick healing. So um, as we do that, I know that many of us here may know people that are going through physical ailments or of one kind or another, and you can... Please just uh, in your prayers lift them up as well. So let's do that. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing, the privilege of coming before your throne of grace today to obtain your mercies and to find your grace for help in time of need. And I know for Lorraine and for Brisi that uh, these are great times of need for them. And we we stand alongside of their families for Dan and Maria as uh, as, uh, Lorraine is uh, now recovering. And we're thankful, Father, for for what, you've been, what you've been doing these last couple of days in, in the treatment uh, to expand her lung once again. And so we, we lift up Lorraine to you, and we ask, Father, that you would have, uh, Lord, just great mercies upon her in, in bringing that healing uh, to its conclusion. And we also pray for Brisi that you, Lord, begin to do that work of, of healing that fracture and, and uh, giving her, Father, a, 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 a less pain than what she probably has been going through especially from the, from the uh, uh, incident itself. So we lift them up to you, and we know that there are many others in our congregation as well as our families and our friends that are going through times of physical struggle. But, Lord, your, your word tells us that, uh, that we are to come to you because you care for us, and we're to cast our cares upon you. So we, we take this time to do that, Lord, for the, for the many that are that here today. I mean, I'm sure that each one of us can know someone that's going through some physical ailment or maybe some emotional struggle in their life. And we just lift them up to you right now and ask that you would touch them. Heal their broken hearts, Lord God, because I know many times, Lord, that's the greatest struggle in some people's lives. And I'm thankful that we're talking a little bit about that today. So we thank you so much for this time. Anoint us now and bless us with your spirit so we can study your word with, uh, with, with understanding and, and with, with the purposes of, of applying the truths that you teach us today uh, to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 32. We continue our study of the life of Jacob and what a, what a study it's been. Because just as we were studying the life of Abraham a while back, and then Isaac as well, we realize that their humanness is our humanness. Their struggles in life are our struggles in life. Their battles and the challenges that they face or faced are the challenges and the battles that we face. 
And so I, I think it's just wonderful how the Lord knows exactly what we need when we need it from His Word. And I entitled this message, Jacob and Esau, because I'm very, very uncreative when it comes to titles, but uh, it's only part one, and we really don't even get to meet Esau yet. We just know that pretty soon, Jacob and Esau are going to reunite. There's going to be a reunion. But knowing what we know about their lives before, uh, I don't know what kind of reunion it's going to be. No, actually I do, because I read ahead. But Jacob doesn't know at this moment. He's just had this time with Laban, his uncle slash father-in-law, who had intentions of bringing harm to Jacob for leaving and taking some household idols away, which was actually Rachel that did that. But now that confrontation is over and, and, and... Laban went back east, and, and uh, Jacob continues to go west. There's something on his heart. As I think there would be something on our hearts when we know that there's something ahead that we have to face. But we're not sure how we're going to face it or what we're going to face when we get there. And that's where Jacob is today. Twenty years he spent in Haran. He's much older now. He's in his hundreds. But he has a brother and guilt on his heart that he has to deal with. So we find Jacob here at the beginning of chapter 32 going his way after Laban. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Now, this is tremendously significant. Immediately in this chapter, the angels of God meet Jacob. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. His eyes are open and he recognizes that this is, this is God's work. This is God's camp. This is God's presence. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means double camp. And this will be significant for us too. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now this verse reminds us now that Jacob is dealing with the things of his past as he's heading back home. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus Your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's also coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, I don't think that that was the news that Jacob wanted to hear. Yes, your brother Esau is coming, but he's not coming alone. 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Oh, Jacob, what happened to you? You were doing so well. Taking on the image and the character of your God and of your Lord What happened? Well, let me ask you this question today. What happens from God's perspective, from God the Father's perspective? What happens when we individually give our heart to the Lord and we say to Him, I'm yours. 
be my Lord and be my Savior, what happens from God's perspective? You see, without any doubt or hesitation, we could all say that the Father at that moment in our lives, at that time, without any doubt or hesitation, we could all say that the Father begins a process of transformation in our lives. The moment we say to Him, Lord, You are Lord, I belong to You now, You be Lord, You be Savior of my life. He begins a work and a process of transformation. Because it is at that moment that we are committing ourselves to the change that God is bringing into our lives. Remember that we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, but we all... And he's speaking of believers here. He says, but we all with unveiled face. As open and as honest as... It can be. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And look at the underlying passage. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. By the way, this is one way that we know that we truly have a changed life. Because we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We're not like we were before when we were serving the enemy, when we were living in the world, when we were just satisfying the flesh. It's different. We're being transformed. And that transformation process often involves, and I need you to listen carefully, that transformation process often involves the tearing away of our old self and the creation of that new self, one that reflects God's character. But there comes a time when God calls us to go beyond merely belonging to Him or being changed by Him. We go beyond that, you see. And it happens to all of us. A time when we face a terrible trial or we must give up something really big that is holding us back from from fully serving the Lord. And the Lord does that through something we call brokenness. The Lord breaks us. We don't like it. At least our flesh doesn't. Our flesh doesn't like it when God breaks us. But we need to remember something very important. God breaks us not because He hates us, but because He loves us. God breaks us God allows things that happen in our lives to break us, to to begin that process of molding us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. That's why it says that we do this from glory to glory, from grace to grace, from faith to faith. You see those phrases in the Scripture. Every circumstance, every trial, every trouble, every affliction, these things are used by God because He loves us so much. It is in those times of the afflictions of our lives, the afflictions and the fires in our lives that draw us closer to Him. It says in the book of James, draw near to God and He draws near to you. Sometimes we have to have Him break us to, draw, to make us draw us near to Him. Or sometimes we act as stubborn as Jacob. Paul experienced it on the road to Damascus. 
Certainly many other times after that, but that was the initial time for Paul. Saul of Tarsus was on his way. This Pharisee of Pharisees, this Hebrew of the Hebrews, was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. To persecute his own brethren who had come to the knowledge that Christ was indeed, that Jesus was indeed their Messiah. And he's on his way to Damascus to persecute, even kill believers in Christ. And who does he meet along the way? Jesus himself. And Jesus begins the process of breaking him. Peter went through the process of of brokenness in the garden of of the high priest. In the courtyard, I should say, of the high priest. The very same Peter who not long before had had told Jesus, listen, nobody's going to come and attack you. Nobody's going to come and take you and arrest you and crucify you. I'll I'll stand there with my own sword. I'll, I'll, I'll beat him off. He had good intentions, but Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. Was there in that courtyard as he's following along after Jesus' arrest. And he's following along in the shadows and he's, uh, you know, and he's recognized by someone. And they said, aren't you, aren't you one of the Galilean fishermen that followed after Jesus? And, and three times he denied. He denied Jesus. And though he knew Jesus, the Lord was breaking him more. Until after the resurrection when... Disciples got together up in Galilee. They had gone back to Galilee to go back to fishing, back to their old lives. But they meet Jesus again. And there by the shore of the Galilee, while having breakfast, that Jesus prepared, by the way, he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And for each time that Peter had denied him before, he asked him the question, Peter, do you love me? Don't you think that'd break him? And he broke him to transform him, to become the courageous preacher that he was in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And following. Then we consider Jesus Himself, Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane sweat drops of blood as He faced His cross. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world agonized. He didn't need to be broken, but he went through a breaking process on our behalf for us. And Jacob now faces such a time. We've seen Jacob go from a master deceiver at home to a a convert at Bethel, to a husband in the land of his fathers, and then to become a father as well. All in all, leading to the very fact that he became a changed man. Jacob did become a changed man on this journey from Beersheba to Haran. And it is quite significant that the Lord in his life, the Lord mirrored a super Jacob in the person of Laban, his uncle and his father-in-law. He mirrored this Because if you remember, part of the process of breaking for Jacob was that what he sowed, that would would be what he reaped. He would reap what he sowed. And he had been been so deceptive. He had deceived his brother out of his birthright. He He deceived his brother and his father out of the blessing. The fact of the matter is, when Jacob and Esau were born as twins, they were already fighting in the womb of Rebekah. And God gave a prophecy that said the the elder will serve the younger. And in saying that, he said there was the younger that was going to receive the blessing. But somehow Jacob, Yaakov, who is the supplanter, the deceiver, the conniver, 
decided he was going to put it into his own hands to have that blessing himself when God all along would have given it to him. I'd be, I'd be interested in knowing how God was going to do that, but, you know, I know God can do anything because nothing's impossible with God. But just like a lot of us, we sometimes like to help God out. And Jacob did that in his life. So when he gets to Haran, he, he, you know, here, Jacob, who had had a master's degree in deception, he meets somebody with a doctor's degree, a doctorate degree in deception. And that was Laban. But that was part of the breaking process. Because what God was showing Jacob is, this is what you could have become had I not entered and intervened in your life. Have you ever wondered what you would have become if God had not intervened in your life? With the way your life had been going? You ever thought about that, folks? Think about it for just a minute. Okay, just a minute. Are you thinking about it? It's not a pretty picture, is it? Jacob, though out of all of this, made choices. Jacob made choices to serve God by acknowledging that God was and is the source of all blessing, but he also made the choice to serve and to protect his family. And that's what he was doing in moving them out of Haran and taking them to Beersheba. Now, last week we saw the final two meeting of the, uh, or the final meeting of these two, Jacob and Laban. And Laban, just like the enemy, and we talked about this last time, just like the enemy, he began to pull out all the stops to get at Jacob. Everything to stop him, to keep him from going home. And then we learned that he never intended to let Jacob leave with anything. Just as Satan comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But God was with Jacob. Folks, God was with Jacob, protecting him from harm and getting him safely away. Now, he faces his most difficult task yet. And that is going home and facing the man whom he cheated twice. His brother Esau, his elder brother Esau. The one he cheated out of the birthright over a bowl of lentil soup or a stew. Uh, and and the secondly, out of the blessing by, by deceiving his elderly and blind father Isaac into thinking that Jacob was really Esau. And Esau lost a lot. A birthright, a blessing. He lost the inheritance of the elder son. That didn't mean he wasn't going to get a blessing, but he would normally would get a double portion. That became Jacob's. Though it was done by deception. So now you would understand why under the threat of death, Jacob was sent away by his mother Rebecca on the journey that he is now completing. A 20 year journey, by the way. And what will Jacob encounter on this last leg of this journey? What will Jacob encounter? Will he encounter a jealous brother who has had 20 years to build up his hatred? Will he find a massive army all bent on wiping Jacob and everything he owns off the face of the earth? Well, you might say, well, you know, Jacob had a lot of people with him and stuff, you know, but Esau had 400 men. And that's 401 men against one. So all they were going to do was go and get Jacob. I call that a massive army. If it's 401 against one. And see, where Jacob is right now, Jacob doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what's ahead of him. He doesn't know what his future holds. He doesn't know what's around the corner. Much like today, some of us, we don't know what we're going to have to face tomorrow. We know where we're going to go to work or where we're going to go to school or whatever we're going to do tomorrow. But we don't know what we're going to face. But God knows. Jacob didn't know, but God knew. And before Jacob meets Esau... He will face an adversary worse than any has ever known. Jacob will, fe- will face an adversary stronger or worse or more powerful than he's ever known. And you know who that is? God himself. Yes. 
I said adversary for a moment. Because in the chapter that we are in, chapter 32, Jacob will wrestle with God. We're not going to talk about that today. But he will wrestle with God. Now please understand then, that in his adversarial role, God is going to break Jacob even more. And he's going to turn from being Jacob's adversary at that moment to being his advocate, which he was already doing. He was already on Jacob's side. But to break him, he had to be his adversary. Interesting thought, isn't it? The Lord will break Jacob, the deceiver, the conniver, the supplanter. And he says, I'm going to change your name. No longer are you supplanter, deceiver. Now you will be Israel, governed by God. No longer will you govern yourself. Now you'll be governed by me. And that is what Israel means. And that would be his name. So we meet Jacob once again in verse 1, and it says, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. All right, so he's aware. God's with him. He's aware. He needed to be aware that God was always with him since Bethel. But then he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means a double camp. So not only is there the camp of Jacob, now there's the camp of Jacob with the camp of God with him. But it brings back this thought, this thought that Jacob certainly was fearful of Laban. I mean, what we had already dealt with before in the last chapter. Jacob had, had feared Laban, but as we will see, he will be fearful of his encounter with his brother Esau. But the Lord shows him now. The Lord is showing him why he shouldn't be afraid. He shouldn't be afraid because the Lord has his angels in the camp with him. And and did you notice that the text in verse 1 there says that the angels of God met him? It was the angels of God who met Jacob. And I would have to say that these these again are the, the very angels that he saw in his dream back in Bethel. When he saw the ladder or the stairway and he saw the angels descending and ascending and God at the top of the stairs. Which, by the way, represents the very fact that God was present too. Because it isn't the idea that the angels are there because God's too busy to be there. No, the angels suggest that God is there. It's God's comfort. It's God's encouragement. And the angels are there to support. So not only was Jacob and his group there, but now there were the angels of God. Now, doesn't that sound encouraging? Yes? That's encouraging. It's, a, it's an encouraging picture. There's two camps. But in reality, there's, there's really one, but there's two camps. There's us and the Lord. And these angels were there to watch over and to protect them. And in fact, they had always been with Jacob from the moment that he had become aware of them in Bethel. And that should have given Jacob that great encouragement, as it should us, because we are told concerning angels in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 14, that are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Isn't that why they're here? They're sent forth as ministering spirits to minister, to serve. For those who will inherit salvation. So they are going to serve the believer. And that should bring us great comfort, knowing that the Lord has sent His angels to protect us and to watch over us. And again, it isn't because the Lord doesn't know. The Lord does know because He's present. What did, what did the Lord tell Abraham? I'm going to be with you. What did He tell Isaac? I'm going to be with you. What did He tell Jacob? I'm going to be with you. But there is a special comfort in knowing that God has given us 
His angels, an angelic presence. Christians down through the ages have given accounts of angelic presence in missions and missionary and ministry work, even in the midst of grave trial and danger. Sometimes it doesn't prevent some sort of bodily injury due to persecution or the like, but even still we find that the purposes of these ministry spirits is just that, to minister with comfort, to minister with encouragement that God is still in control and is watching over us, to give us the opportunity to do the things that God has called us to do. And some might say, but why are certain missionaries killed? Because God said... That we, our lives, you know, we're giving our lives unto the Lord. We may give our lives. The apostles gave their lives for the Lord. The prophets gave their lives for God. Did God not protect them? Yes. All throughout the time of their ministry, all throughout the time of the work, when they were called home, whether they died as, as, uh, uh, because of persecution or whether they died in, of natural causes or God just took them as He took Elijah, that's in God's purview. That's in God's hand. But throughout the time of ministry, God is going to be there and He gives ministering spirits to give us comfort and encouragement and to minister to us. One great biblical account, by the way, is that of Elisha. Not Elijah, but Elisha, who was the protege of Elijah the prophet. The one who received the mantle and the double portion of of the of the very work of Elijah the prophet. And during the time of Joram the king of, of, of Israel, there was a there was a war with, with Syria, with uh, called the Arameans at the time. And uh uh, and in that account, we see this, we see this, uh, uh, this little exchange here in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, let me read just verses 50 through 17. It says, When the servant of, of the man of God, this would be the servant of Elisha, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. That was the, the army of the Arameans or the, uh, the Syrians. And then it says, And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He looked out and he saw this whole big army around their, around their city and around their house. And he says, what should we do? And in verse uh, 16, uh, Elisha answered and he said, do not fear. That's a wonderful statement that he makes. So the first thing he says is, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And so the servant again stuck his head on and said, okay, where are they? Because all he could see was the army of the Syrians. And Elisha told him, but our army is bigger than theirs. Okay, where are they? And in verse 17, Elisha prayed. And he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Elisha knew they were there. The angels of God, the army, the host of God. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah, all around Elisha. They were there. He opened his eyes. You know how often we talk about the fact that there are principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickednesses in high places from the statement that Paul makes uh, dealing with the armor of God in, in Ephesians chapter 6. So we, we get this idea that, well, you know, well, in, in that spirit world, we can't see it, but there's all kinds of demons. Yeah, there, there are, but let me tell you this. So are the armies of God. And they are greater. And they're greater in number and they're greater in power. And even one of God's angels can wipe off enough in, of, of, of Satan's minions. And we should praise God for that. And I'll tell you why we should praise God for that. Amen. I'll, I'll tell you why we should praise God, because we can't see it. <laughs> but it's happening. It's happening, and we should trust in the Lord for that. In our own lives. So, with that in mind, how, how, how does this encounter with the angels affect Jacob's life? Well, let's go back to verse 3. Three of our texts. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. We realize now that Esau has 
uh, I'm sorry, that Jacob has Esau on his mind. The closer he gets to Beersheba, the more he realizes, man, I got a brother that really hates me. And, he, and, he, and so he commands his messengers and he says to them, speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus, says, sir, uh, thus your servant Jacob says. Notice the language there. Tell him, Lord, call him Lord Esau. Tell him servant Jacob says this. Now, a lot of commentators will say that Jacob is, is actually kind of scheming and plotting again. And, and there is some, some truth to that. But I don't believe that he's scheming and plotting by using this language. I believe that truly along this path, along this walk, East, uh, Jacob has been ministered by God to the honesty of his heart that he is carrying a guilt over what he did to his brother and that needs to be dealt with and he is humbling himself. Just keep that in mind. Then he goes on, uh, let's go back for a second. He says, uh, I have dwelt with Laban and, and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then the, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now Jacob was quite aware <laughs> that there were issues that he had to take care of in regards to his past in Beersheba, namely the unbrotherly and unscrupulous way that Jacob had dealt with his brother Esau. Now, remember this, the Lord had not forgotten what Jacob had done, but neither had Esau. The Lord had not forgotten and neither had Esau. God needed to deal with Jacob's old guilt. Have you ever found yourself carrying a lot of old guilt over something you did and you never had the opportunity really to ask forgiveness for it or you never had an opportunity to just kind of make things right? You know, a lot of us go through that today. We may have done something in the past and maybe, maybe they were very forgiving about it. But you've carried that old guilt. Can you imagine carrying it for as long as he did? It eats a person up. Old guilt eats a person up. So it was now in Jacob's heart to reconcile with his brother Esau. And before testing the waters, he humbles himself in preparing his message to send through his messengers. So he uses that language. Speak thus to my Lord Esau that your servant Jacob says. He, he, he sends his servants to the land of Seir, the country of Edom which is uh, the descendants of Esau. And, and, and th this country of Edom is located south and east of the Dead Sea. For those of you that have been to Israel with us or have been there or are you planning to go, I mean, it's, uh, it's present-day Jordan. You, you can see it on the other side of the Dead Sea. And he sends them there to inform Esau that he was returning to the land. His message to Esau was twofold. He let Esau know his whereabouts. So this is another indication that, you know, he, he's sincere about this meeting with, with Esau. He's not hiding from Esau, in other words. He's letting him know his whereabouts. And then he's also letting him know about his wealth. That's the second thing. And to let him know about his wealth was not about boasting to Esau. Jacob wanted his brother to know that he was not coming to take anything away from him. God had prospered him. God had made him wealthy. I mean, he had already stolen the two things that mattered the most to Esau. His birthright and his, and his blessing. So, I guess in a way he wanted to soften things and say, I'm not, I'm not going to steal anything from you. Because God's blessed me with so much. And to some degree... He was trying to anticipate Esau's thinking and, and have answers to some of Esau's concerns. But the message that his servants bring back to Jacob was somewhat disconcerting because Esau's coming to meet him with 400 of his men. Now that's kind of scary. But there's something else that we need to consider, and that is what was not said. Something that was not given to us as information, and that is... There wasn't a greeting from Esau given to these messengers to go back. There wasn't a greeting. 
there wasn't a word about his intentions. All he had was a pointed warning of his ability through strength. In other words, Jacob, I have enough firepower to get rid of you. And to take care of you for the things that you did to me. And it brings to mind a proverb, Proverbs 18, verse 19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. If you remember how we started the message last week uh, between Jacob and Laban, how, how I mentioned that none of us likes confrontation, none of us likes to be initiators of it, nor do we like to, to be the, recepti- uh, the, you know, the receivers of, of, of uh, confrontation. We don't like it. It's not what we get up in the morning to do. Uh, if we have to do it, it's a struggle. Contentions, confrontations lead to contentions and, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. Hard to break through. So it seems that Jacob had already forgotten something. Jacob had already forgotten the unseen host that marched with him as his second camp. He had forgotten about the angels. And had he forgotten the promises as well? Because... If you go back to Genesis 28, 15, God says to him this, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. That is a direct promise from God. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to watch over you. Had he forgotten that? Do we sometimes forget that? Listen, this is about us as well. When we face an uncertainty, when we face something that we're not sure is how it's going to turn out, how it's going to play out, how it's going to happen, how it's all going to work out, we don't understand. We fear, don't we? Let's be honest. I asked uh, that question last night to the congregation, man. I, the first time I've ever seen all hands go up. But that's the reality. It's the truth. We're still human. We're still in bodies of flesh. There are, t- there are times when we, we can still fear things around us. Now, what we've seen so far is this. We've seen Jacob's preparation. God, we, we've seen the preparation. You know, he already realizes he's got to face Esau. But the second thing we've seen is God's protection. He reminds him of the angels. He says, hey, angels go out and meet him. He says, wow, there's another camp, and they're with us. Isn't that wonderful? Until we get to the third point. Jacob's plotting. Now he's got to plot again. That was one of his problems before, but now he's doing it again. And that's where we find ourselves. See, he plots because he expects the worst in spite of what the Lord has done. Folks, isn't that us too sometimes? We expect the worst even though God has promised us the best. I'm not crying. But I should. Because I think all of us do what Jacob does. We oftentimes expect the worst. Even when God has done great things. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Oh, Jacob, my goodness. I was so excited last week because, man, you were just starting to really take on that image and character of the Lord. Oh, it was just wonderful to see. And now you're afraid again. And now you're distressed again. What happened to your faith, Jacob? And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. You're plotting again, Jacob. You're scheming again. You're trying to help God out here. But in essence, you're just helping yourself. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Okay. Well, he's really worked this out, hasn't he? I don't know if you understand the mathematics of God. But God multiplies the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They divide. 
Jacob's dividing. God had already provided a second camp. Why is he dividing another into two more camps? Do you know how many camps there are now? How many of you said four? Ah, come on. You said four? Where's the fourth? Who's the fourth camp? Let's see, there's the angel's camp. Then there's the two divided camps. What's the other camp? It's Jacob. He's waiting to see which one wins. Which one doesn't get beat up. Then he'll go back to that one. Isn't that kind of sad? People divide. God multiplies. What did God do when He gave them the camp of the angels? He multiplied them. They were strengthened by the camp of the angels. What did Jacob do? He divided. He weakened the situation because of himself. Just like Isaac and Isaac and Abraham telling their wives, listen, tell them you're my sister. Tell Pharaoh, tell Abimelech, you're my sister. So they don't kill me. Well, they'll take you and put you in a harem, but they will kill me. Like father, like son, like grandfather, like son. Sad situation, isn't it? But here's the thing. When faith is crowded out by fear, when faith is crowded out by fear, we're prone to start scheming and trusting our own resources. Why was Jacob so fearful? Simply because 20 years earlier, his mother, Rebekah, told him, Now therefore, my son, Genesis 27, 43, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Oh, now that we know who Laban is, was that good advice? But God allowed it. And she goes on and says, And stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. A few days turn into 20 years. Until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. And then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? I'll let you know when he cools off. I'll let you know when things are better. I'll let you know so you can just come home and everything will be cool and everything will be fine and everything will be right. One thing we do know is that Rebecca never sent word to Jacob that all was well, that Esau was no longer angry that he could return home. She never sent him that message. And so Esau then obviously was still angry and he, could, and he wanted Jacob dead. And it was certainly Jacob's carnal plan. as a schemer that he worked out divide the camp into two and Esau might be able to get one but not both but who was that going to benefit somebody was going to be hurt and he was going to lose when God all along promises that I'll be with you you won't lose a thing if you trust me What else had Jacob forgotten? Well, that there were two camps already. But one thing that he could have said was this. And, and you know, sometimes we, we think about what we could have done better after the fact. But I think it's important for us to understand this, this statement that I'm going to make to you right now. One thing that Jacob could have said was this. Listen carefully, because I hope that this is the way we handle things from here on. He could have said, I don't know if Esau is coming in peace or if he wants to kill me. I hope for peace. But if not, the Lord is with me and he will protect me. He could have said that, but he didn't. We can say that and it will be true. We don't know if something that is in the future in our lives is going to be for good or for bad. We don't know. We hope it's for good, but if it is not, God has promised to be with me and He will protect me through whatever bad may come. Are you, are you getting the picture here? 
Are you getting the perspective that we need to have in trusting the Lord with all of our lives? Or as it says in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He shall direct your paths. Does it make sense? It does, doesn't it? Biblically and spiritually, it makes sense. Jacob didn't do that at that moment. But there are two verses of Scripture that do help to overcome fear. Now, there are many of them, but I'm going to use just two. Because I want to give you one from from the human perspective, and then I want to give to you the second from God's perspective. Let's look first at the one that gives us perspective from our side. Psalm 56, verse 3. The psalmist says, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Now that's real, isn't it? That's, that's reality. Because many times, as, even as believers, we will find things that, that happen that are unexpected or, or just things that happen because we didn't expect them to happen in, in, in our time or in our day or in the way that they happen. And we all of a sudden sense that fear. But he says, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Immediately, we begin to trust the Lord because of the things that we cannot see or the things that we cannot control or the things that we cannot handle to try to to manipulate them. It's no good if we try to do it anyway. We need a trust in the Lord. So from the human perspective, we start with fear, but we trust the Lord. You You all understand that? We will find something that will hit us with, and bring us to fear, but then we say, oh, but I must trust the Lord. So that's a human perspective. But now let's go to Isaiah 12, verse 2, and notice now from God's perspective how He sees things. Because here the, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Notice if we start with God first, then we have no need to be afraid. That's from God's perspective. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah. That's God's name. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. We sang this song last week, I think, last Sunday. When I can't see you, I know you're here. When I can't feel you, I will not fear. I will trust in you and I will not be afraid. We will fear things, but we can trust the Lord. And when we trust the Lord, then we won't be afraid. Isn't that that a beautiful progression? That's, that's coming from our perspective and turning it around to God's perspective. I will be afraid. There are things that are going to happen. I don't know why they're happening, but I know this. I will trust the Lord. And when I trust the Lord, who is my salvation, who is my provision, who is my everything, I will not be afraid. Got it? All right. Good. Man, I just thought maybe I lost you there for a second. You're awful, awfully quiet or just pensive. Mm, okay. Well, listen, believers who are walking by faith need not fear the enemy or whatever bad news may come our way. Do we ever get bad news? We get bad news all the time, don't we? But have you taken time to look at Psalm 112, verse 7? Because it says, He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. We're going to get bad news, but we're not going to have to fear it. We don't have to fear bad news. Because our heart is steadfast. It is anchored in trusting the Lord. And see, folks, I'm hoping that you're examining your hearts. Examine your hearts and see that you are in the Lord. Because, isn't that what Paul tells us? Examine yourself to see that you are in the faith of trusting God. So we're told now in our text, going back to Jacob... That Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, wasn't he? It says he was greatly afraid and distressed. So what he does is he went back to one of his old policies. He started scheming. And he started dividing. And he said, well, you know, if this works out, you know, I'll... Okay. 
Let's be fair to Jacob. Let's be fair. Because Jacob immediately, as all of us should, even if we've done a little plotting, which we shouldn't, but even if we have, let's be fair to Jacob because what we find here in the next passage, which we're going to close before we go to communion, Jacob finds the key to his situation. And he finds it in prayer. Notice Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. Ah, this is good. This is good. It's real good. He's praying. And he's praying to the, to, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's praying to his God. And, 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 but, but you know, he's doing something more. He is praying God's Word. He's remembering what God said. This is good. Mark it down as good. Got it? Bueno. Verse 10. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. This is getting better. It's getting better. Folks, I hope you're understanding something here. There's a, there's a pattern of prayer here being established for us. I'm hoping you're taking notes. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I've become two companies. Oh, not the divided companies. But there's two companies. Uh, it could be the divided companies and that he's confessing that he did something he shouldn't have done. But we go on. Verse 11. And he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Folks, guess what? It's getting better. The prayer is getting better because we see now the honesty of him saying to God, I'm afraid. I am afraid. How many of us are honest in our prayers? Well, I hope you are. I hope you are. The fact is, we need to be. Jacob's being honest. He says, oh, I fear lest he come and attack me. For you said... I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's called, this was a great prayer. Highlight this prayer as a pattern of prayer for you. Let me establish a little bit of an outline for you as we do. Because as we prepare to come to the table of communion this morning, I'd like these points to be meditated upon and considered as we partake of the Lord's Supper. I want you to consider that this was a prayer of thanksgiving unto God at a difficult time in Jacob's life. The things that he pondered and the things that he remembered are those very things that we are to ever keep before us, especially in our times of need, especially when we are going through struggle, especially when we are going through trials, especially when we are feeling the, the blunt ends of, of uh, the hard ends of, 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 uh, of afflictions in our lives. It begins with this. He remembered God's promises. Jacob remembered God's promises. Jacob's prayer reflects that, that fact that he stood on the Word of God in verse 9. He stood on the very Word of God. He says, Oh, the God who said, Get out of that land. Get out of there. Return to your land with your family. He prayed the Word of God, folks. And oftentimes, and I want to say this with all love and due respect to each and every one of you, so listen to me carefully, but oftentimes our own prayers fall short because there is none of God's Word in them.
And that because there is very little of God's Word in us. Is that true? But Jacob remembered God's Word to him. I encourage you time and again, get into God's Word. Let God's Word penetrate your hearts and your minds. Let it, let it just, just saturate you with the truth of God's love and grace and mercy and, and all the promises that God have, has given you as He gave to Jacob. He's given to you. And you can speak those to the Lord. It's not like if you're having to remind Him, but He wants you to know that He knows that you know Him and His Word. He remembered not only God's covenant, but also God's command to leave Haran and to return to Canaan. That's what He remembered in this prayer. Secondly, He recognized His unworthiness. He recognized his unworthiness. Jacob saw his own unworthiness before a holy and righteous God. He didn't deserve anything from God. And yet in his grace and in his mercy, God extended his love to Jacob as he also does to us. Folks, we are not worthy. None of us are worthy to receive anything from the Lord. And yet he blesses us exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And so Jacob petitions the Lord to deliver him from the hand of his brother Esau. Because we know one thing, this was, a prayer, this was a prayer of a desperate man, but a man who suddenly realized that it didn't depend upon himself at all. It depended upon his God. And every struggle and every trial and every tribulation and every temptation that you deal with doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon God. And it depends upon the promises of Christ to you. And thirdly, he realized God's many blessings. He realized them. And while we don't want to imitate Jacob's fear or his unbelief or his scheming or his proneness to jump to conclusions, we would do well to pray the way that Jacob prayed here. Remembering God's promises. Recognizing our unworthiness. Being honest with the Lord. And realizing the, the blessings of God. He claimed God's promises, by the way. He claimed the promise. He remembered God's goodness. He rested completely on God's character and God's covenant. No matter what circumstances we may face or what fears may grip our hearts, we can always trust the Lord to be faithful to His character and to His Word. God is faithful to His Word. Even when we are not faithful, God is faithful. And He will accomplish whatever His Word goes out to accomplish. It will never return to Him void. I want to leave you with this before we come to the table of communion. I want you to ponder this. I want you to meditate upon this today as well as this week. Verses 18 and 19 of of Psalm 34 Notice, I'm going to do this slowly. I know we're already late, so hey. Uh. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. What did we begin talking about today? How God breaks us. But He doesn't break us because He hates us. He breaks us because He loves us. He already knows us. Before we were born, He knew us. And And we're told here to draw near. He says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Because He understands and He knows. He knows what we go through. He saw it before it even happened to us. And when He breaks us, He wants us to draw near to Him. I mentioned James uh, chapter 4 earlier. Draw near to God. And He draws near to you. That involves breaking. And He saves such as has... As uh, such as have a contrite spirit. In other words, just as Jacob confessed honestly his fears, he says, I, I, I need your help, Lord. 
A contrite spirit is one that says, I'm a sinner. And I've sinned. But notice this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Would you consider this a negative confession? Because today there are some people who are going to be going around telling people all the time, you listen, you know, God doesn't want you afflicted. God doesn't want you in pain. He wants you in good health. He wants you to have riches. He wants you to have all of this stuff. That's the word of God. It says many are the afflictions of the righteous. Therefore are good, by the way. But nonetheless, even in the midst of our pain and struggle through these afflictions, God says the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord delivers them out of him out of them all. Out of every affliction, out of every pain, out of every circumstance and trial and trouble. He delivers us because he loves us. It is in that deliverance that he is molding us, shaping us, forming us more and more into the image of Jesus. Which is what the Word says happens in our lives. Ponder these things as you take the cup and as you take the bread this morning. Think about that in your life today. Are you being molded more, shaped more, fashioned more and more into the image of Christ? Are you letting God do His work through the afflictions that you face? And are you turning those afflictions over to Him and say, Lord, I'm not worthy, but you've promised. And I trust you. Will you trust the Lord this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you.